This is hell. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell. And today I will be pretending I know something, well, anything about home building, renovations, or even maintenance of a residence. Like I always do when a contractor comes to my home thinking that they cannot tell how little I know when in reality they all tell me I have no idea what I'm talking about and it's clear to them. And that's why they would rather talk to my girlfriend who is far more knowledgeable about things like, you know, tools and carpentry and the industries that contribute to and play a role in home building. Our guest today is Dan Colbert, co-author along with Christopher Bailey. Michael Maines and Emily Matram of Pretty Good House, a guide to creating better homes. So yesterday we talked about the unhoused, and today we'll talk about making pretty good homes. Dan has been a building contractor in Portland, Maine for 20 years and a carpenter for 35. And we have all sorts of listeners in Portland, Maine, including Chris over at the Mainer. The folks right over at the Ballard and the folks at Wild Folk Farms. And I gotta get in touch with you guys real quick. Dan has written for various trade publications, including Fine Home Building Magazine, and for the past 10 years has been moderator of the original Building Science Discussion Group in Portland, Maine, where the pretty good house idea originated. You can see Dan's work at Colbert, K O L B E R T building.com. Follow Dan's work on Instagram at Colbert Building and find out more about Pretty Good House at prettygoodhouse.org. Also, check out the Sustainable Home Building Accelerator e learning series at finehomebuilding.com. This intensive interactive online series of courses is designed to rapidly advance your knowledge of suitable and sustainable home design and construction. Whether you're an architect, builder, or a homeowner, you'll get the information and confidence to design and build well-crafted, practical homes that maximize performance and comfort. The Sustainable Home Building Accelerator is an intensive, interactive online series that you gotta go check out. Again, that's at finehomebuilding.com. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. How is your week going so far? Mm, I voted today. Did you vote? You actually got up and voted before you came into here? Yeah, but wow. you know, it worked out because I had to park my car in front of the school where the voting happens, and I had to move that car by 7 a.m., so I just went and did it, and it was way... like. First of all, I'm confused. I heard election day was November 8th, and now there's another one. Um, <laughs> they always sneak in that February one. Yeah, it's ridiculous, but um, it was much better than last time when I went in the middle of the day, and you know, it was terrible last time. I'm still still traumatized. <laughs> I uh, have to go, instead of out my back door to the Park Field House, which is only a couple hundred yards from my house, I now have to walk a few blocks, and so it's like probably another 100 or 200 yards and i find that just intolerable you could, <laughs> i have to walk you, 200 more yards i mean you could always mail vote i just i'm new to voting in the city and i haven't you know registered to mail vote i that always have i think preferable i always want to early vote and i never do and i've even walked by an early voting place that's open twice in the last week that I could have just walked in and voted. And I was like, no, I haven't done enough research yet. Have I done any research? Absolutely not. And I'm going to be voting immediately after today's show. 
Yes. Yeah, I'm thinking about all the I voted stickers going into the landfills. I know. That's another thing. We don't need those. The only time you ever <laughs> needed those receipts was when there was a thoroughly illegal practice here in the city of Chicago where you would take your receipt from voting and go to any bar and show it to them and they would give you a free shot or a free beer. Maybe if it were like, I think I should get a free ice cream at least. See, so that would at least true, a single yeah. scoop of, uh, you know. Uh-huh. They cost like $8 these days. <laughs> Jesus. So, <laughs> so me- yesterday, many of you may have seen the story that the U.S. Department of Energy had low confidence in a report they were leaking to politicians who in turn were sharing it with the Rupert Murdoch owned, and remember that, Wall Street Journal, that COVID-19 was leaked from a lab in China. You likely heard about the story from someone in your family or a friend who went from COVID denier to anti-vaxxer and has now moved on to some culture war nonsense meant to cause outrage about anything other than the shortcomings of unbridled capitalism. But the New York Times ran with the misleading headline, Energy Department Suspects Virus Was From Lab. Not what it should have been. Energy Department has low confidence Chinese virus was from lab. Or even better, yet, U.S. still inconclusive on where virus originated. But there's an upcoming congressional hearing on the virus's origin set to take place next week. And it appears the New York Times is hyping what they hope is the Super Bowl of congressional confrontation with kickoffs set for March 8th. Here's excerpts from the actual first few paragraphs of the New York Times story. Some officials briefed on the Department of Energy Intelligence said that it was relatively weak and that the Energy Department's conclusion was made with low confidence, suggesting its level of certainty was not high. While the department shared the information with other agencies, none of them changed their conclusions. Officials said that they believed the virus was not from a lab in China. Officials would not disclose what the intelligence was that led to the Energy Department's conclusion. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, declined to confirm the intelligence. In addition to the Energy Department, the FBI has also concluded with moderate confidence that the virus first emerged accidentally from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a Chinese lab that worked on coronaviruses. However, for other intelligence agencies, remember the FBI is supposed to be a domestic law enforcement agency. However, four other intelligence agencies and the National Intelligence Council have concluded Again, with low confidence that the virus most likely emerged through natural transmission, the director of National Intelligence Office announced in October of 2021. Mr. Sullivan said Sunday, there is a variety of views in the intelligence community. Some elements of the intelligence community have reached conclusions on one side, some on the other. A number of them have said they just don't have enough information to be sure. Some scientists believe that the current evidence, including virus genes, points to a large food and live animal market in Wuhan as the most likely place the coronavirus emerged. So, in case your Fox News friend or friends tells you, it has been proven that the virus was definitely created in a lab in China, as Fox News is telling all their viewers via the Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal, on a day that Rupert Murdoch admitted in court that his Fox News on-air celebrities knowingly lied about the 2020 election being stolen, which was not mentioned on Fox News, you need to be ready to explain that nobody in the government is certain yet where the virus came from. However, epidemiologists who actually spend their lives studying the origins of viruses have been saying that a virus would emerge from deforestation for decades, and the majority believes that's where COVID-19 came from too. 
but linking deforestation, let alone globalization or capitalism, to pandemics is not something the corporate establishment media wants to do. Sadly, the following day, the New York Times, in a follow-up, saying the Energy Department report on the virus beginning in a Chinese lab may be adding to rising tensions with China. So, thanks New York Times and Fox News for stoking tensions with yet another nuclear power. What seems to be the rush to get more clicks and higher ratings that World War III promises. And tomorrow's guests will shed a lot of light on the next pandemic's origins, and we'll tell you about that in a moment. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you giving up for Lent? What are you giving up for Lent? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. All you have to do to see all of our merch is go to thisishell.com and click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But as always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Lindsay, what is Jeff talking about this week? During this week's moment, Jeff advocates for the condemned. So I am done with asking whether we should have Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch back on the show or not. Cy posted a piece at his substack reporting that the U.S. was behind the Nord Stream pipeline that connects Europe to Russia. And I know I'm going to get a lot of complaints whether we say we are going to have Cy back on the show or if we have decide, decided not to have Seymour Hirsch back on. So after asking Patreon patrons, after asking people on all the social media platforms that we usually do stuff on, after asking those in our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group, which is now 420 strong, after asking during office hours, during our weekly meet and greet that's really a drinking th- drink and think, after asking you in every format we know to connect, you, connect with you, and after asking everyone who works on the show, It's still a virtual freaking tie. We have had the same number of people who have vehemently said, yes, have Cy back on, as the number of people who warned us to not have him return. By my count, we have had just as many abso-effing-lutely have him on as those who said they feared such an appearance would have a long-term negative impact on our integrity and credibility. That is, assuming we have any of either. Then there are those who say Cy Hirsch should be on because he is Seymour Hirsch, with no other explanation other than name recognition. While others point out that he has already been on dozens of shows and is repeating the same nonstop rant wherever he does, I just don't know if we should have him on or not. Can I fit in a question? So, there is a great interview with him by Jack, at Jacobin by a past guest on our show, Fabian Scheidler, if you want to check that out. Fabian wrote the book, The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization, which we discussed here on This Is Hell back in 2019, I believe. We've even been told to not be like the establishment media and ignore the story, which we haven't, as we have been mentioning it here on the show at least a couple of times a week since the first day Seymour's newest article was published. In fact, we were one of the very first shows to send him an interview request, and he immediately replied, agreeing to be on. 
We even worked out a way to have him on only days after the article went live and adjusted our entire week's schedule to do so when he ghosted us and stopped replying. The last we heard from Sai was a little over a week ago when he said he could still work something out, and that's when we ghosted Seymour because, as you, our listening audience, has struggled with and finally decided... After Sai has made the rounds on podcasts and radio shows alike, including those that are on nearly a thousand radio stations around the country, Seymour Hirsch will not be returning to This Is Hell. We want to be engaged in the kind of direct democracy so many of our guests have turned us on to over the years. That's why we ask why you, who you want on the show and which topics you'd like to hear discussed. However, this process has been grueling. We would likely have been better off if we hadn't put you and us through this whole ordeal. We apologize if you are one of the many listeners who insisted that Seymour Hirsch would make a great return guest. We want to thank all of you for participating in this decision-making process. We also want to thank Seymour Hirsch for appearing on our show twice in the past. So in the spirit of Lent, I now wash my hands of the whole thing, the whole situation, as the listeners have chosen Barabbas, whoever that is. Coming up, a pretty good house is a much better house for our age of climate change than many of the homes being built today. We will have This Week in Rotten History. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest, who will be talking about the origins of viruses and the origin of the next pandemic, something that you will not hear discussed on Fox News and likely not on the front page of the New York Times. Live from the United States, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell and home buying, home ownership and home building are definitely an area where the American public understands the price, but not the value, as we insist that price per foot is the controlling factor in determining the kind of home we wish to live our lives within. Here to help us have a better understanding of what a home is, and more importantly, what it can be, Dan Colbert is co-author, along with Christopher Briley, Michael Maines, and Emily Mottram of Pretty Good House, A Guide to Creating Better Homes. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dan. Hi, Chuck. Great to have you back on the show, sir. I'm sorry that we can't have a live video feed because I would really love to see your cats right now. <laughs> are you ever afraid? That oh, well, I'm not at home, so you wouldn't see them. Anyway. Okay, so you don't take them to work? How cruel are you? That's I terrible. know. Can you believe it? <laughs> so you write this book was written two decades into the new millennium. As global warming was producing record heat, storms, and floods, houses were being built by the millions, and far too many of them were being built badly. They are unhealthy for their occupants, prone to decay and early failure, and are energy gobblers contributing massively to global warming. I have construction workers in my family, and they've been telling me the exact same thing for the last 20 years, if not more. To you, what explains why today's homes have the kinds of problems you mentioned. Is the uh, is this new to any degree? And if it is, what happened to lead to a worsening home construction quality? Um, it is definitely worse. Um, I, you know, there's there's a million reasons why, but you know, I I think that um, home ownership as wealth is a huge problem, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you. 
And the commodification of home ownership, I think, has led to really bad decisions. There is people, the, the, the decline in the number of years that people own their homes is scary, right? Where, where maybe once upon a time, somebody bought a house and they lived in it the rest of their lives, and maybe several generations owned the house. Uh, now, I don't even remember what the stat is, but it's less than a decade. So who cares that much? Right. You just want to get the biggest house you can sell it for as much as you can so you can buy an even bigger house. So you were just saying that home ownership is not, uh, you know, home ownership as wealth is a problem. Yet here in the United States, as we know, so many African-Americans, their generational wealth is put into their homes, that that is often their only place for wealth. And so they hand the home down to the next generation. And that is a major source of African-American wealth in this country. So what does that say to you about African-American wealth when it is bound up in home ownership as wealth, which you see as a problem? Well, if they're really handing it down, I mean, it's certainly valuable in the sense that uh, they don't have to pay rent and they can borrow against it and things like that. But unless they sell it and then they don't have a place to live, it's a curious kind of wealth, right? It's about it's about as unliquid as you can get. So do home buyers simply not care if their home is, as you call them, energy gobblers? They just not care anymore how much energy their homes consume? Because as you point out in your uh, in the book about the, this focus on like granite countertops and that kind of thing, you watch HGTV, you watch that stupid show House Hunters, they're talking about how I hope this house doesn't have a bidet in it because I can't have a house with a bidet in it or I can't have a tree near my house because I can't stand the sound of birds. I mean, if why are we so concerned about marble countertops and whether there's a bidet in the house instead of what the insulation is? What are we missing in our understanding of homes when we focus on what seems to be the distraction of amenities? Well, I can't stand the sound of birds either, I just want to say so. <laughs> um, so I am vaguely optimistic uh, that things are changing. I think people are more concerned about energy efficiency than they were simply for the fact that it costs more than it used to. I think COVID has also shined a light on indoor air quality in a way that perhaps nothing else could have. And people are talking about, you know, you don't have to convince clients as much as you used to, to that ventilation is an important topic. So but our, in terms of go the overall situation, I don't know. I, you know, socialism is the answer. I, you know, I don't know what I, I don't know how to get out of it. I wish I had a, I wish I had an answer for that, but I don't. So are we expecting more and more and more out of our homes with the crisis of the pandemic of COVID-19 as well as the crisis of climate change? Are we expecting too much out of our homes due to these crises, or is something else driving why we're just not happy with a pretty good home and it's got to be a fantastic home? Well, that's a good question. And I think that the point of the book is to say simultaneously less is better uh, and less will actually get you more of what you want. That asking homes to be huge uh you know 
windows in the wrong places, all of these things, and be healthy and not use a lot of electricity is absurd, but that with some fairly simple strategies, you can build a wonderful house that is an energy sipper rather than an energy hog. You write that in the past hundred years, a flood of new information and ideas has transformed our understanding of homes. Indoor air quality, as you were mentioning, separate from the outdoor air quality, is predicated on our increasing technological ability to monitor and improve the condition of our homes. What impact do you think that transformation has had on our view of the world when it comes to issues like climate change, as we house ourselves in homes that increasingly protect us from the outdoor environment? Do you think our understanding of our impact of on the world outside has been affected, including when it comes to decisions like purchasing or building a home? Are, 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 do you think that our understanding of our impact on the world outside has changed because we expect more from our homes? Yeah, and it depends who we is. Um, I yes, we, it definitely needs to change. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of the looming climate apocalypse is baked in already. Um, so one of the things I worry about these days is what should we be focusing on? Should we, you know, should we, should our houses, should we just be focusing on resilience? If we have a vague sense of what's in store for us, is should that be our focus? Um, you know, another thing is that anything, uh, I'm really trying to drive home the message that any action we take has to be carbon neutral or carbon negative in a very short period of time. Uh, we talk about this in the book somewhat that, you know, there's a lot of products out there that can get your house to be incredibly energy efficient, but the carbon intensity of those materials, especially things like foam insulation is is the typical example uh the carbon the co2 equivalent in them is in the thousands or tens of thousands so it could easily take a century for the energy savings to pay off the carbon load of those materials and we don't have a century so how big of a conflict is there in trying to produce an energy efficient home with the kinds of technologies that we have to make it home energy efficient today is there a big conflict between the the what you want in the end and the materials used in that process yes there is um and you know there are ways around it we have uh in the insulation world there's a lot of really fascinating stuff going on i've got a couple of friends one in maine and a company in vermont who are doing incredible stuff with with straw panels uh, and straw is an incredibly carbon storing material anything that's sort of agricultural waste where it would either be burned or composted or just left to rot in the fields and release its carbon if we can use that in a building material and store its carbon until its end of its life that's fantastic uh, even wood, even like cellulose or wood fiber insulation is also a potentially wonderful source. So there are alternatives. Obviously, building with, you know, wood and other plant materials is always preferable to something synthetic. So you, we can build carbon negative houses. But is it just more expensive because this foam, for instance, would be in huge supply, so it would be something that would probably be cheaper to purchase. So does making a pretty good house, does making an, an energy efficient home drive up the price of the home? And how quickly can you get that money back? Because that would seem like something that would be capital intensive and therefore the 
person who is making the pretty good house would already have to have kind of a nut laying around instead of, you know, just uh, going along with the short term spending. Sure. Well, new home construction is inherently expensive and it's gotten incredibly expensive in the last few years. So I guess I reject the idea that it's inherently more expensive, especially because one of the things we push in the book is that good design is better than throwing square feet at a problem. So an, a, a pretty good house in some ways is inherently easier and should be cheaper to build than a not pretty good house. You also point out that you explain the authors of the book are two architects, that's Chris Briley and Emily Mottram, a designer, Michael Maines, and yourself, a building contractor, all living and working in the southern half of Maine. We are friends and colleagues and have spent countless hours discussing how to make houses better. In 2009, Steve Constantino, owner of Performance Building Supply in Portland, Maine, devoted to selling products at the cutting edge of building science, and I started a building science discussion group, a monthly get-together to share our successes and mistakes and improve the knowledge base of the building community in our area. One of our sessions in December 2011 was titled The Pretty Good House, and the innovations explained what I had been wondering, which you ask, when does enough become enough, and what is practical for a realistic budget? How often have you been asked to build, not to build enough, but to build too much when it comes to a home. Have you seen a change in how much home people want in their homes to an extent that desires and demands have really become unrealistic? Uh, Yeah, I would say yes. And I would say, uh, you know, I think in every new house, you could find, you could easily find things to cut, even in the houses I build. I'm always trying to shrink square footage and all that stuff. You know, I, I, I mean, even to back up a minute, I don't, I struggle, and in fact, I struggled when we were writing the book with the question of what is the value, like, will will single family detached houses ever be, you know, a net positive? Is there a way for it to not be destructive? Even if the houses we build are net carbon negative, does it support a lifestyle that is unsupportable, right? You know, if, if you have to own a car, if you have to drive to the grocery store, all of these things. Um, so, so that's that's sort of one of the essential questions that I don't have an answer for. Um, but yeah, new houses. In, I think there's a there's a graphic in the book that shows um, it's a graph over time since I think the Second World War of average home size and average family size and there are two lines heading in the opposite direction our our families are getting smaller while our houses are getting bigger so it sounds like as a home builder and this was going to be a question i was going to ask you later if that you kind of suffer from a, a sort of cognitive dissonance when it comes to being a home builder that you have beliefs and then you have trouble matching those beliefs and actions together so as a home builder, do you think that we shouldn't be building new homes, but we should be instead uh, renovating the stock that we have to make those homes pretty good? Yeah, well, I often quote you, Chuck, in that we're all capitalism's bitch. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yes, renovation, as we talk about in the book, is inherently uh, less carbon intensive. Uh, two of the biggest pieces the framing and the foundation are already there. 
two of the biggest carbon pieces, I mean. Um, we wrote the book about new home construction partly because it's just a lot easier. The problem with renovation is that that you have to come up with unique solutions to every house. There's no, there are no rules that you can make that you wouldn't have to break immediately. The publishers want us to write the pretty good reno, and we'd have to where we were thinking about it, and we'd have to structure the book in a much different way than we did this book. But yes, uh, and and a lot of our work is reno, just to say that. And Maine has a huge stock of old houses that are in desperate need of of renovation and weatherization. Do you come across times though when let's say a home was built in the you know late 18th even early 19th century there were there was already architecture from uh, colonialism happening there in uh, Maine do you ever come across a home that's just too old to make into a pretty good house or is any home able to be renovated into a pretty good house well we are completely non-prescriptive uh you know this was a, this was a response to rating systems so you know, we joke that, uh, well, in fact, we did it. We have on our website, you can download your own pretty good house certificate, and that's the extent of our rating system. So, you know, I think a pretty good house, I think there's there's very few old houses older than 50, 60, 70 years old where it would not be fairly simple to cut their, their energy consumption in half. Uh, a house that was built, you know, before the Civil War or something, there's always things you can do. Even just air sealing a house is the most important thing you could do, and that makes a huge difference. So there are always things you can do. So let's talk about those standards for a second, because you write that I'd had experience with various home rating systems by that point, and I found them all to be useful in raising important questions. But I also knew that they raised costs. And in order to get that rating, we were often doing things that we didn't think were worth it. Passive House projects required insulation under the house well beyond the point of diminishing returns. Some projects ended up with uh, bike racks to get LEED points, L-E-E-D points, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, with no idea of whether anyone would actually use those bikes. Point chasing entered the lexicon and not as a compliment. So why would LEED require insulation under the house well beyond the point of diminishing returns. What does that reveal to you about rating systems in general, like LEED? Uh, well, that was passive house with the subs, with the underneath foam. Um, but it reveals, I think, that um, it's a good question. Partly, it reveals that that human, you know, that humans are, are always want to be competitive, right? I think that uh, in, in that way, that that ego gets involved. And, you know, if you're on the cusp of like a silver or a gold rating for lead, you're going to make decisions based on whether or not it's going to add points rather than whether or not it's going to improve the house. Uh, so that was one of my problems with 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 these systems. Uh, the foam problem was kind of a math problem where where you could get to this certain level of stand you could get to this certain level of energy performance in their model uh, by adding foam that I thought was uh, ridiculous. In the interim, they've they've changed things and that's gotten better. Um, but it's always a question, right? Like, what does this make sense? And we talk about, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book that no rating system really talks about is money. We talk about economics and diminishing returns and what can people afford. And I like the fact that money is one of the issues involved in the project, that it's one of the, you know, there's always a budget, even if they don't tell you till it's too late. 
So in the building of a pretty good house, you ended up getting a platinum rating, I believe, despite not trying to chase points. If so, if so, what was it about the house that you thought made a pretty good house, but attained the highest lead rating possible, even though that wasn't necessarily your goal? Right. Well, we, if I'm building a new house, I am going to push energy efficiency. I mean, I just, I, I, we don't build very many there, you know, we, it could be two years in between new house projects for us. So I can be pretty picky about it and I'm not interested in getting involved in a project where they're not going to push these goals. So the house was just very energy efficient. Um, we, we used some fairly cutting edge stuff at the time. Um, and honestly, I can't even remember anymore how we got all the points. But it was, you know, it had a lot of things going for it. The things that the, the thing that I really love about Lead, the thing I think was the most important uh, development for Lead was they talked about where a house is and how close to services you are. You got points if you're within a certain number of miles to whatever a supermarket, a hospital, all of those kinds of things. Um, it's obviously a much more ener- much less energy intensive lifestyle to live close to services rather than to live way the hell out there. How much do you think um, that? So, how much do you think home buyers recognize that? I don't know that they recognize the energy efficiency piece, but I think they recognize the services piece. I mean, there's certainly Maine is a is a very uh, sparsely populated state, so a lot of people live a long way away from anything. Um, but I certainly think it's a lure of living in one of the urban areas is that you don't have to drive, you know, half an hour to get milk. Or to go to the hospital. We are speaking with right. Dan Colbert, who is co-author along with Christopher Briley, Michael Maines, and Emily Matram of Pretty Good House, a guide to creating better homes. Dan has been a building contractor in Portland, Maine for 20 years and a carpenter for 35. You can see Dan's work at colbertbuilding.com. I'll follow Dan's work on Instagram at colbertbuilding and find out more at prettygoodhouse.com. Dot org. You write cathedral ceilings. Uh, you write about cathedral ceilings and how you gusseted down the rafters to provide for a thermal break and increased insulation, more cellulose for R52 rating when it comes to insulation, which all sounds great. But the way that I've always understood it, and this is clearly as a layman, is that cathedral ce- ceilings are just incredibly inefficient. They're a mark of a McMansion, of a wasting, an energy gobbling McMansion. Uh, so can there be cathedral ceilings that are energy efficient or are they always necessarily inefficient? No, they can easily be. I mean, space to space. Uh, and I think what you're talking about is these what what are called lawyer foyers, where it's you walk in the door and then it's, you know, 20 feet of wall and then the cathedral ceiling above it. Uh, the house, In this house that you're talking about, the rafters came all the way down to the floor. So this was basically the attic of the house. So the the ridge was, you know, taller than the usual ceiling, but it wasn't like you had eight feet of wall and then the ceiling sloping up. Um, that is certainly wasteful. So I want to ask you a real basic... that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, so I want to ask you a basic question about uh, solar heating before I get to another yeah. Uh, story about it. Uh, in the pretty good house, you also had a, a solar heat, hot water system on the south facing roof, evacuated tubes on the roof, feeding a storage tank with an electric on demand water heater as backup. 
So is the construction, this is a basic question that everybody asks, is the construction of solar heating affordable? And does affordability and whether the solar components are allowed to be built, as well as the tax incentive and energy buybacks, depend upon where you live? If it does depend on where you live, how hard is it to find that information? Right. So first, let me say that this that the system you're describing on that house is one that we uh, do not do anymore. That was solar hot water collectors. And this was just before the dramatic reduction in cost for p- photovoltaic panels. So we haven't done a system like that. I think we did one more after that house, and then we haven't done it since. But in terms of photovoltaic or PV, uh, it is very affordable in the sense that you are paying up front for the lifetime of that equipment and you will certainly get more electricity out of your panel than you would have paid for the same amount of electricity to the power company but the problem is you got to pay up front there are financing options you can roll it into your mortgage all of those things but you know it, it is an upfront cost as opposed to just paying the power company every month but the numbers are are easy to figure out and and they're they're in your favor almost anywhere i mean i have them on my house i'm at the i can't remember but portland's almost the 45th parallel and it works fine for you yeah So last week, the New Hampshire Bulletin reported how Ohio's state legislature had newly empowered county governments to drastically restrict wind and solar power development, a process formerly overseen by the Ohio Power Siting Board and the meetings of the three-member governing body for Crawford County, which is a population of 41,754, suddenly started becoming a lot more animated. They then quote one of three county commissioners, all of whom are Republicans, one by the name of Doug Weisenauer, saying as soon as Senate Bill 52 passed, the anti-wind people, they started converging on our weekly commissioners meetings and demanding that we do something. The bulletin reports ultimately the commissioners voted two to one last year with Weisenauer the lone no vote for a 10-year ban on all wind development. The commission's uh, decision was overwhelmingly upheld by county voters in a referendum last fall. To what extent is the clean energy you hope to provide in a pretty good house under threat by existing, new, or even changing laws? Is the kind of alternative energy that a pretty good house depends upon under threat by government? Yes, is the short answer. Um, It is very weird how it's become a a cultural issue, right? Another another cultural signifier. I, I don't know. In fact, I'm, I'm, I've just started writing a piece, maybe for myself as much as anything, on how much does the language that we use in the home construction industry feed into what we know was a deliberate attempt or no deliberate whatever, not attempt, a deliberate success or something from the petroleum industry to both define the terms of the debate and confuse the terms of the debate. We know that things, you know, it would, plenty of people have done great research on things like recycling and carbon footprint and all that, and how they were inventions to push onto the consumer the responsibility for cleaning up the planet from all the mess made by the petroleum industry. And uh, just sticking on that idea for a moment about uh, what has become a culture war issue and what has not. 
you write that what makes one of your case studies, uh, a home referred to as Jamaica Plain Legacy, what makes that a pretty good house is new mechanical systems eliminate most combustion appliances. Why are combustion appliances not used in a pretty good house? Are they inefficient and more costly to operate? Are gas stoves bad for those who want to save money? Uh, yes to both of those and more. Um, they are partly it's because we think it's a little crazy that we're still burning fuel on site to create anything. Uh, oil is still very popular in Maine. I don't know if that's true in Illinois, but, um, you know, home heating oil means you've got a 200 or 500 gallon tank in your basement of toxic materials and you're burning the stuff, not terribly efficiently. And then the emissions go out your attic or into your house if you're really lucky. Um, the uh, and the other thing is, you know, natural gas. I mean, another petroleum, you know, another product that's had a hell of a PR campaign. Uh, natural gas is, of course, a euphemism for methane. Um, and it's inefficient at every step of the way. The amount of gas that escapes during the mining of it, during the transportation of it, and during the storage of it is huge. And methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. I am always surprised when I am speaking with someone and I tell them that natural gas is methane, that they've never heard that before. It, it's Right. It, it's an, it, it's the greatest con job in a while. I know. It, 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 and your friend and mine, Liza Featherstone, just wrote a great piece on how everybody loves these new uh, um, induction stoves. Which are? Which are all electric. It's basically uh, induction means they're inducing a magnetic current. And it's this incredibly fast and efficient way uh, to cook. And it's also very safe. And it's also very good for emissions. You know, cooking on a gas stove creates really awful indoor air quality in addition to everything else. So you write, we also built a big dormer facing south on this one building. It makes the roof line more complicated, harder to insulate, and more expensive to build. It makes the roof more susceptible to problems long term. But it also turns the attic from a nice spot to a truly beautiful inviting room. So I think it was worth it. One lesson of the pretty good house approach is to let performance inform the design, but not to dictate a narrow path. Why not be obsessed with performance if your goal is affordable efficiency? Why not sacrifice design for performance? What is lost in what is lost when you do sacrifice design for performance? Well, there's a joke uh, that like a house designed by an engineer would be uh, incredibly high performing, but no one would want to live in it, uh, and a house designed. Uh, well, I can't remember the rest of the joke. But anyway, obviously, the best house would be, you know, a box with very few, if any, windows. Uh, and it just would not be a very nice place. So design is critically important. Nobody is going to want to live in a poorly designed house. And design, saw, as I said earlier, you know, design solves a lot of problems. I feel very fortunate to have worked with these three my co-authors who are all really excellent designers and have worked with them professionally as well. Uh, you know, I think most tradespeople start out with a ridiculous disdain for designers and architects. And if they're smart, they slowly realize uh, how good these people are and wh what they bring to the project. Um, 
you know, it's bad design. First of all, nobody wants it's it's not going to last, right? If it's a house nobody wants to live in, it's going to get torn down. So, and you mentioned this three-legged stool of designer, builder, and client in creating a pretty good house. Now, I would feel that I was completely out of my league if I was sitting down with a designer and a builder and I said, I have these ideas that come from the book Pretty Good House, and I was wondering if we could consider those or talk about those, or or if I just blatantly said, I want a pretty good house. I would feel ill-equipped for that conversation. How often, because, uh, you know, usually the relationship between designer, builder, and client is, here's the house that we built. Do you want to buy it? So right. how difficult is it for somebody who is a layperson like myself to tell a designer and a builder what I want when I'm not even too sure how to design or build a home? Right. Well, you give them a copy of our book. <laughs> um, the the you know, construction and design, I mean, they're very much based on trust. Uh, I, I tell my clients, uh, you know, it's going to be a really intimate relationship. Uh, so you better like, you, you better like the other two people involved, the other two parties involved. Uh, you, you really have to have a high level of trust. And, and I don't know sort of how to objectively say, how do you know when you have it? And your home is also in your pretty good houses in uh, response to climate change. But given climate yeah. change, how much, you know, that is constantly going to be changing. How much can we determine what the climate conditions will be in the not so far off future in order to build a house that will be best for those climate conditions? It would seem like you were talking about homes now, people living in a home for 10 years. I would think that that's going to be become even more and more normalized moving forward because homes are going to have to adapt more and more to the ongoing change in our climate conditions. So how much can we know, how much and how can we determine what the climate's going to be in the uh, not so far off future for building a pretty good house? Sure. Well, some of those changes are already happening. Like, uh, you know, th there's been this explosion of this technology called heat pumps. Uh, which your listeners may or may not be familiar with. But basically, an air conditioner is a heat pump. Uh, but they can also be designed to run in both directions. So the same equipment can both heat and cool the space. Uh, when I started in Maine uh, many years ago, we never did air conditioning. I mean, it just was not, uh, I think maybe in all my years, I worked on one house with a central air system. Uh, but now it's fairly common, and partly it's because this technology has emerged, but also the summers are getting noticeably hotter. I think we had three days this last summer in June above 90 degrees, uh, and that's just insane for us. 90 degrees in any month is noteworthy, and it never happened in June. So, you know, that's one obvious example is our summers are getting hot in a way that they never did before. So... You know, having cooling is becoming a necessity. Uh, I think other things like, you know, the fact that we're building anywhere in a flood zone is just insane, right? That, 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 you know, I mean, we know for, I mean, we know there are plenty of places that are going to be uninhabitable, yet we're still building on them. We've got places in Portland that flood. The Whole Foods parking lot here floods frequently. So is there such thing as air conditioning that, you know, is safe for the environment. After all, we've had guests on our show who have pointed out the, uh, in the past that AC is horrible for 
for the environment and is a horrible contributor to climate change. But as climate change gets worse, we have to depend upon more air conditioning. So is what's the best we can do when it comes to having a pretty good house that has pretty good air conditioning? Right. Well, just like heating, uh, your need for air conditioning can be mitigated by good design. Uh, you know, siting your house so it's not overheating, uh, you know, shade trees, good insulation lowers, you know, just like it keeps the cold out, it keeps the cold in in the summertime. Uh, so that's the first thing on, on, uh, for every house is just get the shell, meaning the, the surfaces, the exterior surfaces of your house as good as you possibly can. Uh, one of the one of the economic advantages to pretty good house or passive house or any of these high performance houses is that our goal is to push the efficiency far enough that you can start to dramatically reduce the size of your heating and cooling systems. You also mentioned simplicity in your case study of another home, the Seville house. You ask what makes this a pretty good house and you give uh, one of the reasons is being a simple house shape. Why is simplicity essential in making a pretty good house? Simplicity is important because for well, for a bunch of reasons. One is uh, the 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 more sort of complicated, crenellated, the more jigs and jogs you got in your outside of your house, that's the more surface area there is exposed to the weather. And the harder that is to insulate. If it's a complicated roof line, it means you need a lot of structure to support all that. And structure means wood, it means beams, it means things taking up space that would be better off taken up by insulation. Um, the other piece is that, well, it's obviously more expensive to build in the short run, and then it's also just harder to uh, maintain in the long run. Uh, you know, if you look at a roof, if you're driving around and you look up at roofs, if, if people have dormers, you'll notice that the, the valley where the dormer hits the main roof it is typically in worse shape than the rest of the roof. And that's because the water collects there and runs down it. So just to follow up on that, you also write that the more your house looks like one, a kindergarten, kindergartner, kindergartner, I'll say that correctly at some point, <laughs> uh, would draw minus the smoking chimney, the better off you are, at least in the north. So why is that simplicity best in the north? Oh, I, just that it's um, the the roof, the, the, the roof is pretty steep pitched in the typical kindergartner's house. Um, and that uh, helps you a lot in the north to shed snow. In the south, lower pitch roofs are typically better because, um, you know, for a bunch of reasons, including that if you've got tornadoes coming through or hurricanes or whatever, that's just that much less roof facing the weather. In another case study of the Maquite, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> that's they, pretty close. Uh, home, you write that it is a pretty good house because, as you write, it has a simple shape without unnecessary architectural flourishes. So is a pretty good house minimalist in design? Should architectural flourishes in home building be a thing of the past if we want to address issues like wasting energy or contributing to climate change? I think so. Um, you know, it's tough. As a builder, we want to you know we want to show off sometimes um so it's a tough call you know it's a it's a, it's a it's a painful sacrifice for us to be building simpler houses but but yeah i, I think that they are i think yes you that also space go ahead. yeah go ahead no i was just going to say that you know space for the sake of space you know 
this shape for the sake of shape, I, I think, yeah, it, it's 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 inherently wasteful. But again, good design can turn. You know, like I think our cover, our the book on the the the, the house on our cover is about as simple as it gets. But but I think it's quite beautiful. You know, uh, we now I'm forgetting her name. Uh, the uh, woman who runs the website McMansion Hell. Oh yeah. Um, uh, yes, I can't think Rachel, of her name. Rachel, Amy, Amy, something. Yeah. I think. Anyway, so uh, right after we had her on the first time, she was on the show. She's been on twice, and I still can't remember her name. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> we went out to a neighborhood here in Chicago, the Saganash neighborhood up on the northwest side, and we saw all of this really disturbing McMansion design. And uh, after that show, we got a whole bunch of emails from people who say, "Hey, look, my parents live in a McMansion. They're not terrible people." That's the only house that they could get. That's the only house that had the size that they wanted. That's the only house that was available in the area that they were in. That's all they are building is McMansions. So it's not their fault. Why do you think people are so defensive when it comes to being critical of McMansion design and their proliferation? Uh, well, your house is a big deal, right? It, it's, uh, you know, first of all, it's the biggest purchase you'll ever make, presumably, most of us anyway. Um, second of all, you know, it's where your life happens. I, I don't I don't begrudge people, you know, being defensive about their houses. Uh, and, and, you know, I guess the question is if they, if they go out and build a McMansion, you can beat them up for it. Um, if they buy one, I, you know, we don't beat people up who live, you know, in the middle of nowhere for not taking public transportation. I got you. You also suggest we avoid PFAs, forever chemicals, as well as the flame retardants they can often be found in, as well as avoiding antimicrobial solvents, bisphenols, which are used to make plastics more rigid and durable, phthalates that are used to make plastics more flexible, as well as certain metals. How difficult is it to make certain none of those materials are used in the construction of a home? And are there alternative materials that are better for you and your home at similar costs? Because as you know, with food, it's very difficult to find out where the origin of that food is. So how difficult is it to find out if the things like forever chemicals are being used in your home? Yeah, it's practically impossible. Um, Chris Briley, one of our authors, was involved in a project in southern Maine uh, called the Ecology School, and it got raided by something called the Living Building Challenge, uh, which is pretty much the strictest uh, standard out there. And one of the things they have to do is go through Living Building Challenge has a red list of materials you are absolutely not allowed to use. Um, and it's mostly things like that. Um, and it's really hard. I think they had, you know, I think the team doing the project had somebody working full time for a very long time, tracking down all the information. You know, some things are easy, right? You buy siding for your house, it's wood, it's one material, or it's plastic, it's one material. But think about, you know, your refrigerator or your washing machine, how many zillions of components are there in that thing? So, I mean, they were talking about vinyl chloride and all sorts of chemicals that were in the East Palestine train derailment. When you saw the list of chemicals that were on those trains, uh, if you did, uh, are any of those due to home construction? Yeah, sure. I mean, vinyl chloride, you know, PVC is everything. P- you know, uh, humans are probably 5% PVC at this point. It's 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 in everything. In a house, PVC is in your, you know, your, your plumbing is PVC, your waste, the white you know, the white plastic waistlines are typically PVC. Uh, a lot of windows are made from PVC. 
it, you know, it's everywhere. A lot of trim, a lot of ex synthetic exterior trim is often made from it. So is there an alternative that's better for the environment? Yes, um, there is. Plumbing is tricky. There's been some interesting studies that actually argue that like PVC is more responsible than than copper or cast iron. Um, I think it's, you know, whatever you, it's debatable, but, but the people doing it, were doing it in good faith. And I believe they're, I believe that they came to their conclusions, honestly, you know, and they're measuring things like how much energy does it take to create, to produce PVC versus how much to produce copper or, or cast iron. Um, you know, again, with like the trim, there's always a wood product that'll do it. It requires maybe more upkeep than the PVC, but, um, that's, that's an issue. You write that in 1975, the average American single-family home was 1,660 square feet. Now new houses measure about 2,500 square feet. As the size of the average household has shrunk since 1975, you are mentioning this earlier, this doesn't seem to make much sense, but you don't have to look far for two big reasons. The concentration of wealth in the United States and the deeply entrenched car culture, which means that cheaper land outside city centers is easily accessible. So inequality and climate change are causing bigger homes that are inefficient and contribute to global warming. Are realtors, developers, designers, and even builders benefiting from inequality and climate change? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that we're benefiting from climate change, but we're certainly benefiting from inequality. Um, you know, most of my clients... You know, I'm not building. I'm not building new houses for 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 poor people, or even for you know, people who work, whatever. For people fairly, I'm building. If not the one percent, I'm building for the three percent, right? Right. So one last question for you, Dan. Uh, we are speaking with Dan Colbert. He is co-author, along with Christopher Briley, Michael Maines, and Emily Matram, of Pretty Good House, A Guide to Creating Better Homes. You can see Dan's work at Colbert Building, K-O-L-B-E-R-T Building.com. Follow Dan's work on Instagram at Colbert Building and find out more about Pretty Good House at prettygoodhouse.org. One last question for you, Dan. And as you probably know, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, I'm ready. You write jokes about poorly built, mass-produced McMansions with their three-story lawyer foyers. Three-story lawyer foyers abound. These homes are often compared to junk food, empty calories, high in fat, low in health, and so on. But it's the story that much of the housing industry is telling. The highest square footage for the lowest price is the only thing that matters. So junk food leads to health problems for individuals that are in reality public health issues leading to higher medical costs for not only the person affected, but for everyone, or so the story goes. What do you think is the cost to the public of McMansions? And as you describe them, the lawyers' foyers are full of empty calories. How do you think that affects a community? Well, the um, you know there's the whole zoning issue, which is the whole other show in itself. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's resource intensive. Uh, so that obviously has an impact on the rest of the planet in terms of using the resources used to live in that house are ridiculous. And then of course, the resources used to build the house, what we call the embodied carbon of the house is obscene as well. So yes, it, it, it is a hogging of resources in the same way that 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 resources are hogged. In what do you, other ways. What do you think it'll take for people who are either building or living in a McMansion to recognize the impact on their greater community? Oh, my God. That is the question from hell. <laughs> it was better than the first one. Right. Uh, you know, whatever. Guillotines? I don't know. 
I don't know. Uh, so is Colbert Building building guillotines in the near future? Are you thinking about yes. that as a revenue well, stream? Well, I have made the joke uh, before that, that um, you know, that, that high-end builders, the best thing that they could do for the environment would be to murder their clientele, but that's probably not a great growth strategy. <laughs> but it is going to be the possible poll quote for this interview. So thank you very much, Dan, for <laughs> oh, being goody. on the <laughs> And expect the FBI at your door in the very near future. Right. <laughs> thank you very much, Dan. Great to speak with you. Dan Colbert, co-author of Pretty Good House, A Guide to Creating Better Homes. See Dan's work at colbertbuilding.com. Follow Dan on Instagram at colbertbuilding and find out more at prettygoodhouse.org. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dan. Thank you, Chuck. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is Hell If, what you just heard from Dan Colbert, if that made you realize that, yes, this really is McMansion Hell, especially if we keep making homes that waste, ener- with that waste energy during our age of climate change. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or if you don't want to subscribe on Patreon, just show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. I think we got all the ones from Patreon yesterday, so maybe Facebook, Twitter? Which one do you want to do? We'll go to Facebook. All right. I saw lots of Facebook responses the other day. Yes. Although I will start out by going back to Patreon for a second, because I noticed I got a link from Ladio and my... uh, in my Mixler, my live stream from yesterday, 20, 23 hours ago now. All right. Uh, about the response on Patreon that was. What, what's the question from hell again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the question from hell is what are you giving up for Lent? I'm having a terrible time with this mouse over here, so it's taking me a little bit longer. I hope you, you're saying it's a computer mouse, not a rat from the outdoors. <laughs> yes, the computer mouse. Because the rats from the outdoors usually carry knives, and they're very scared. <laughs> All right. Uh, the From Todd H. said prestidigitation. Right. You said that And we were said, like, what is that? What is that, right? Well, Ladio sent me a Wikipedia link. To what it is? <laughs> to pre- to yeah, to prestidigitation. You want to tell us what it is real quickly? It says uh, from French prestidigitation. Uh, that's a good tongue twister. The prestidigitation. word. The word has a different or. Oh wait, sorry, that's the etymology, not the definition. The definition is a performance, or of a skill in performing magic or conjuring tricks, conjuring tricks with the hands. All right. So. They're not That's what they're giving up for. They're giving up, up for Lent. Sleight of hand sleight of tricks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I guess thanks for my own security. <laughs> I don't know. I love I love David Blaine. I wish the world had more. <laughs> more David so Blaine. don't do it. Don't give it up. Okay. Um. <laughs> anyways, this week's question from Hell. Uh, what are you giving up for Lent? What are you giving up for Lent? So here on Facebook, our uh, first responses on Facebook from Borky B, Jesus Garcia <laughs> is what they're giving up for lunch. Chewy Garcia, he's giving up Chewy for lunch. Okay, um, whatever. 
Yeah, well, I guess that is uh, topical here in Chicago or whatever. And nowhere else. <laughs> Brianna Kay is giving up my hopes and dreams for the future. <laughs> I like that. You can't plan anything. It's, what's the point? So, uh, you know, you're the ordained minister overseeing a wedding, and then the person tells you that what they're the, that you married, got you know, ordained the wedding for. They tell you that they've given up their hopes for the dream, their dreams and future. I did a great job of marrying people, didn't I? That's really great. Uh, great. sure. I'm sure that is. I'm sure everything has to do with you marrying them. It all has to do with me. <laughs> we live in a Chuck-centric universe. All right, uh, SLS. Uh, what are you giving up for Lent? Your mom. <laughs> of course, not her herself. That would be going too far. Just the phrase as an answer to the question from hell. Bravo, SLS, and thank you again for the amazing support that you showed last week for This Is Hell. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that response is pretty meta. It's, uh, <laughs> it is. I'm I, confused I like it. for a second. I know. Okay. On to Judy J. What are you giving up for Lent? She says, so many possibilities. Booze? Don't drink enough to make it a worthy <laughs> sacrifice. Sex? Something's got to hold the marriage together after 44 years. Sugar? You're kidding. Potatoes? They're a diet staple. Weed? Can't be done. <laughs> Consumerism? <laughs> Stepped away from that decades ago. So I'm going to give more money and time away where the world needs it. Oh, right. That's what God wanted to begin with. <laughs> Dang, Judy J. Wow, damn, throw that was, down. That was true, honestly. That was me, right? <laughs> like, potatoes, diet staple, weed can't be done. That was, yeah, I relate. Spot on. <laughs> okay. And um, you don't drink enough to want to necessarily quit that's drinking. That's true, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm not, I haven't been married for 44 years, so... <laughs> I can't relate on that part. Um, but Sloan T says, uh, for what we're moving on to what other people are giving up for Lent. Right. Sloan T says, ministry. I'll come back to work after Easter. No, I'll just quit forever. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was the band. <laughs> uh, Lisa MP says, religion. All there right, go. good. Quit forever. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Uh, Martin F. is giving up my belief that Karl Marx and Groucho Marx were related. <laughs> All right. Also, John uh, Lennon, not related to Vladimir Lennon. Just in case you're curious. <laughs> we have a lot of responses here on the Facebook. So, uh, uh, how about a couple more? A couple more. Yeah. Um, from Derek B. Well, Derek B is giving up my amateur ballooning hobby. <laughs> That's a great thing to give up, especially nowadays. It is, yes. Ray O is giving up all hope. <laughs> Good lord. Maybe he should he should get together with Brianna K and maybe have some kind of meeting. Yeah. Uh, Mark A is giving up lentils <laughs> giving them up for lent <laughs> that's good i like that one good it's punny Lord. that one's it's punny, punny. <laughs> all right uh adam a is giving up lent <laughs> okay yes that's a, it's a couple people now on team give up lent uh fabio aj is giving up not my ignorance on what lent is that yeah same here fabio aj i've like never celebrated lent i never know when it's happening 
Anyways. I had, when I was a kid, because I was raised Catholic, I had to do the Ash Wednesday thing and the Good Friday thing. But as far as Lent and in between, my family didn't do anything except for on Friday we'd eat fish. And guess when else we'd eat fish on Friday? The rest of the freaking year. (laughs) So nothing really changed. Yeah, my mom was Catholic too, but I think she just kind of gave up on a lot of stuff. Having to take care of twins, it's like, well, that's, whatever. That's what cares? a good Catholic does. Nobody <laughs> converts to the Catholic religion. People are born into it and then leave. Except yeah. for my sister-in-law, who oddly converted from atheism to Catholicism, which makes no sense. But go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay, so a couple more here on Facebook. What are you giving up for Lent? John T. says, Lint on Lunt, unless it is loaned to me. Uh, all right. <laughs> Do you want to just stop there? Because that was god awful. That was some Rogers Park only humor. <laughs> right, exactly. So, Lunt, Lunt it's, a very, it's a street very far north in Chicago. Yeah, up here in Rogers Park, um, West Ridge neighborhood. I don't know. I don't understand the loaning part, but. Because lend. Loan, lend, lent. Do you lend something on Lent? It's know. just a it's one, just an alliteration let's thing. Let's go with one more so we can erase that one from our memory. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a good one. What are you giving up for Lent? Cynthia X says, Lent schment. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, that's where, that's that's where, where we can end up. Yeah, that's for the day. Exactly. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. What are you giving up for Lent? Wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. And Lindsay, please remind us, what is Jeff's moment of truth about this week? During this week's moment, Jeff advocates for the condemned. Ah, finally advocating for me. We will have the rest of your answers to the question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History, March, or I'm sorry, on February 27th, 1861, 162 years ago this week, in Warsaw, Russia troops confronted unarmed street demonstrators who for weeks had been protesting Russia's imperial domination of Poland. The Russians ordered the Polish demonstrators to disperse. When the demonstrators refused to do so, the troops opened fire. Five protesters were killed and many more were injured. And we are absolutely certain Poland has forgotten all about all of that. It has nothing to do with this week's tough talk from Poland on militarily confronting Russia. Or are we? If we have any Polish listeners, and we should because we're in Chicago and on the north side, please tell us if Poland holds grudges against their neighbor to the east in any way because this just might be me talking. But I get this feeling that Poland and Russia, not the best neighbors. Also in rotten history, like if they go next door and say, can we get a cup of sugar? You might get shot. Also in rotten history on February, February, hmm. Also in Rotten History on February 27th, 1968. I'm going to enter a new month called February. It's going to be part of the new metric calendar. Also in Rotten History on February 27th, 1968, 55 years ago this week, and 107 years to the day of Russia shooting and killing people in Warsaw who were protesting against Russian imperial rule. Keep that in mind. The popular CBS television news anchor, Walter Cronkite, having just returned from South Vietnam after a 
first-hand look at the state of the U.S. military effort there, went on the air with a primetime special report on the war, something you would never see today, despite the fact that now we have hundreds of cable channels. Cronkite's trip to Vietnam has been prompted by the so-called had been prompted by the so-called Tet Offensive, a massive coordinated attack on U.S. positions across the country, which had caught the U.S. military by surprise and shattered the illusion that it was making progress in driving back Viet Cong guerrillas and was successfully propping up an incompetent and corrupt South Vietnamese government. A military thinking. Uh, that it's doing much better than it was while propping up a corrupt government. I mean, that sounds about right for the U.S. and Vietnam. Who said the Vietnam syndrome was over? Instead, it appears we just keep repeating Vietnam over and over again, most recently in Afghanistan. The U.S. military brass had treated Cronkite to an opportunist, or sorry, optimistic, optimistic assessment of the conflict, but their line was contradicted by the much darker view of blood and misery that Cronkite saw for himself among troops on the ground. Don't worry. The U.S. military and government no longer allow this kind of journalistic coverage of war, instead embedding journalists with troops who keep the press far away from the fighting in order to sanitize war for the viewing audience that is paying for that war. Unless, you know, it's in Ukraine against Russia, then all of a sudden they're allowed to go on the front line. This had moved Cronkite to abandon his usual stance of scrupulous journalistic impartiality. At the end of his TV broadcast, he looked directly into the camera and told viewers that he viewed the war in Vietnam as a stalemate unwinnable by the U.S. military. You know, like the recent wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and wherever the hell the U.S. is fighting today. Cronkite's shocking comments, combined with the even greater shock of the Tet Offensive itself, were soon credited with helping to turn mainstream American opinion against the war in Vietnam, which explains why the U.S. no longer allows journalists to see the front lines, again, unless you happen to be Ukrainians fighting Russia. And the changing American opinion on the war contributed to Lyndon Johnson's decision not to run for a second full term as U.S. president. But under the administration of Johnson's successor, President Richard M. Nixon, the U.S. presence in Vietnam would continue for several more years and claim many more lives before the last U.S. troops were finally withdrawn after the fall of Saigon, known as Ho Chi Minh City, in 1975. The Vietnam War a horrible war that just keeps repeating itself. Finally, in Rotten History, on February 28, 1966, 57 years ago this week, and I didn't add anything to this because this is pretty hellish, two NASA astronauts, Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, were in the midst of training and preparations for an upcoming space flight during which they were to rendezvous and dock with an orbiting target vehicle, after which Bassett would take a spacewalk. That's really intense. Don't know why I never saw any footage of that. I just did add something to this, so my apologies. Flying together from Texas to in a T-38 jet, the two astronauts were on their way to the McDonnell Aircraft Factory, located next to Lambert Field in St. Louis, where their two-man Gemini spacecraft was being assembled and tested. But the weather was horrible, with the fog, rain, and snow making it impossible to see the runway. And it forced an instruments-only landing. After missing the runway on his first try, Elliot C. pulled the plane back up circled around for another landing attempt, but he miscalculated. The T-38 jet hit the roof of the aircraft factory and then spun and crashed into a parking lot just beyond. 
both Elliot C. and Bassett were killed. C.'s body was found in the parking lot, still strapped into the jet pilot's seat. Most of Bassett's body was also found nearby, but several hours would pass before his severed head was finally located in the rafters of the damaged factory building. Now that's rotten history. And this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Coming up, we have Caroline Chen, who is the lead reporter on the ProPublica series On the Edge. The next deadly pandemic is just a forest clearing away, but we're not even trying to prevent it. Caroline covers healthcare for ProPublica. She has written about public health, hospitals, drug makers, and clinical trials. Highlighting disparities in patient access, broken funding models, and abuses of power. And of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>